0: And I started doing research, and sure enough, if you live in a rural area, or even if you live on the outskirts of an urban center, there's a good chance you don't have recycling. Um, we're talking 34 million single-family homes, and then that's already adding to the 16 million apartment homes. You throw those two numbers together, we're talking 50 million homes without access. There's like 130 million homes in the U.S. I think that's 38% don't have basic access to recycling. It's like, what? Hey.
1: Welcome to The Green Hour, a community of innovators, activists, and government leaders in the world of sustainability. Each week, you will hear from a leader in sustainability to help unlock your mind to a greener future. Hey guys, I'm Preston Pogue, and on the show today, we're going to learn how you can recycle in your local community when there is no recycling infrastructure available. In this podcast, we examine the challenges of inadequate recycling access in rural areas, emphasizing several areas around the U.S. We then explore the birth and mission of Recyclops to make recycling universally accessible and its innovative solution involving a smart routing app and a gig economy model. Lastly, we discuss Recyclops' impact on underserved communities, its expansion efforts, In the potential to transform recycling on a broader scale. If you've listened to any of the podcasts in the past, you can probably recall me mentioning the city Pikeville, Kentucky. I went to college in this old coal mining town, and while I was attending college there, the COVID-19 pandemic hit and we had to shift the way we lived on campus. One of the big changes was how the lunchroom operated, where before it served as a place to hang out and eat, now students had to get food into go plates and take it back to their dorms. I remember seeing all the styrofoam waste and wondering why we didn't have better options, more sustainable options. I then began to see that the city of Pikeville didn't have recycling capabilities because the city did not have recycling centers or infrastructure available. I kept thinking, just because we are a small Appalachian town doesn't mean we shouldn't have the same availability to recycling. We deserve the option to recycle too. And around this time, I ended up taking this thought and creating a business plan for a competition. The idea was to provide recycling to underserved communities, mainly in the Appalachian region of the United States. My proposal featured a smart dumpster tracking system, a customer loyalty app with recycling incentives, and a a mobility-as-a-service platform connecting drivers to recycling logistics. I pitched the idea and ended up winning the competition, but it wasn't until a year later that I learned that someone had taken a similar idea and scaled it all across the U.S. Joining us on the Green Hour is Ryan Smith, founder and CEO of Recyclops, a company that focuses on providing recycling services in areas with limited or no access to traditional recycling infrastructure. They do this by employing a unique approach, utilizing a gig economy model and a smart routing app to connect drivers with recycling pickups and deliveries. Recyclops is currently operating in 30 plus states, bringing accessible recycling to over 1 million households. In 2022 alone, the company recycled over 6.5 million pounds of material, including cardboard, aluminum, plastic, and glass. Ryan's success has earned him a spot on the prestigious Forbes 30 Under 30 list for the social entrepreneur category. The pressing need for recycling in the United States is underscored by the startling fact that 50 million homes lack access to convenient recycling services. This substantial gap in recycling accessibility contributes to the proliferation of landfills, with far-reaching and detrimental effects on our environment and all living organisms. The negative impacts of landfills include soil and water contamination, greenhouse gas emissions, and harm to wildlife. As a society, our escalating production of waste, coupled with insufficient recycling infrastructure, paints a grim picture for the future. Urgent action is required to address this environmental crisis, and companies like Recyclops are working to make recycling accessible to all, regardless of geography. So welcome back to The Green Hour. We are joined by Ryan Smith, founder and CEO of Recyclops today. Thank you so much for joining us, Ryan. Yeah, glad to be here. Glad we're able to connect. Before we get into your story, and and I definitely want to get into that at first, but could you talk about your company, um, Recyclops, and what you do?
0: Yeah, our whole business is built around this idea of sustainability accessibility. And we really um, take that to focus on landfill diversion programs. So we partner, partner with communities and with brands to, to create landfill diversion programs, whether that be a city that doesn't have recycling and we start a recycling program, or whether that be composting dirty diapers. We, we kind of run the gamut. we touch everything from you know the basics to weird stuff like dirty diapers, solar panels, feminine hygiene products is something we're about to launch. And so it's all about keeping um, things out of the landfill, you know regenerating soil. Um With composting, stopping uh, virgin materials from being exclusively used in manufacturing and and trying to make an impact
1: and that's why I'm so glad we're having this conversation because at the end of the day it's about making an impact and about you know creating a su- sustainable future. so I'm really really excited for this. um so the first segment I want to get into is learning more about you and learning about your upbringing. And it looks like you grew up in in a few countries, Um, so you weren't just specifically in the U.S. So could you start off by talking about um, your experiences growing up and and how that molded you?
0: Yeah, I've I've been thinking about this quite a bit, actually, um, of late. Um, But I was actually born um, in South America. My, um, My dad had a job doing construction management. I'm building chapels throughout South America and the Caribbean Um, prior to the Caribbean prior to I was born and then in in Ecuador where I was born and so I was born in Ecuador um, moved to the U.S. when I was one so it's like that's not (laughs) doesn't leave a huge impact on you besides you get a passport so uh, kind of fun but then I uh, when I was 11 we moved to Santiago Chile for three years and that had a big impact on my life and then um, since then, I've lived in, um, I also, when I was uh, 19, I moved to Russia for two mm-hmm. years to serve a mission for my church. And that had a profound impact on me. And I think probably the the most positive impact as, you know, better, best preparation for being an entrepreneur was that mm-hmm. experience and um, lived a few other places um, over time. But yeah, really growing up, I feel like growing up, um, having that uh, couple things. I'm, I live in Utah. Um, Utah is um not the most diverse state, um, which, you know, I think is pretty normal when you're not coastal. Um going and having the experience where I was the minority was powerful. And I think everyone should go and be the minority sometime because it it is it's an experience and right. it gives you a lot of empathy and, and helps you see things differently. Um, and that was, uh, really powerful for me. Um, and also seeing people who had, especially living in South America, Chile's uh, you know, fairly well off as a country. And, you know, we could drink the water. You could do all these, these things that aren't, you're not capable to do in other parts of the world, but there's just a lot more poverty around you than I, than I experience in where I live or where I grew up. And so seeing that and seeing the world in that light and seeing these problems that sometimes you know, we're just blind to, um, was really powerful for me and really impacted who I am. And I think it's part co- core to me wanting to create a business that has an impact that does good versus just create a business. Um, I really think that that is core to it. And, and, uh, it's kind of in your, in my blood from, from those experiences and um, other pieces of my upbringing, upbringing.
1: So you touched on missions and I, I have several friends that I guess I would say had similar experiences getting into the mission field and spending however much time. I mean, I was talking to someone last night and that they had spent six months. Um, it was somewhere somewhere in East Asia that they, they had spent six months. And she was talking about how it just changed her perspective on everything. And it was exactly what she needed at that exact time in her life. Um, and I feel like I'm, I'm hearing these stories all the time about people doing mission work and it just completely shifting shifting their life and changing their life. So um, that's that's really, really interesting to hear how that, was, that one experience that you did really made you the entrepreneur that you are today. Oh, yeah. I mean, one of the biggest things that
0: you need as an entrepreneur is resilience. Being a missionary, resilience is everything because you're going out there and you're talking to people about something that you care deeply about that they don't care about at all. <laughs> and you're doing that all day, every day and just getting rejected. And spit on. And like, you, you kind of see the worst in people and, and where you're trying really hard to, to do what you feel is right. And it, it forces you to really dig deep into who you are and find purpose. And that is a powerful skill.
1: Yeah. I, I was going to say, um, I, I remember hearing a story of, of Sarah Blakely, the founder of, of Spanx and how she yep. talked about you know, founding Spanx, it really, it really came from her selling fax machines door to door, and just the constant rejection that she would feel over and over again, and that helped her when when she got in the field with her company Spanx to know how to deal with rejection. And it sounds like the same thing with you in the mission field. I mean, you're, you're dealing with rejection, rejection, rejection. I'm guessing that there's a language barrier too, um, where you yeah, are. Oh, yeah, you
0: have to, I mean, not only that, it's like you have to go deal with the rejection we have to do it while sounding like an idiot. (laughs) So it it was learning a foreign language is not an easy thing and you're just right in it. And next thing you know, it's like, Hey, you're, you're expected to go and teach people and talk to people. And we, you know, I, we had a a culture where I, you know, I talked to everyone. I didn't let someone pass the street without me, you know, addressing them saying hi, trying to introduce myself and just met as many people as I could. And that, Oh man, it's it's also a great language school. <laughs> but but no it it's uh it's hard and learning the language is hard so it's like you're doing something really hard and then it's compounded by doing something else that's really hard. And it makes almost like learning the language didn't feel that hard. And learning Russian is hard. Russian is a hard language to learn. But, but in comparison to what I was what else was going on, it's like Russian <laughs> No, but it's super, yeah, super interesting to get that experience, and it also, you know, it teaches you how to work with different people as a, as a missionary. Um, in my church, one of the things that's unique is you're always uh, you're paired up with someone else, and it's not like someone you know; it's a stranger. And there, I had um, mission companions who I was paired up with who were uh, from all over the world: um, a Ukrainian, a Russian, Norwegian, British, and American. But you just you get that exposure to other people who had very different, different upbringings than you and you're living with them. You spend every second of every day with them and you learn how to work with very diverse people Hmm. who are all experiencing something hard. And it's like being in a startup. You're all working together. You are all, you're all trying to accomplish the same thing and you all have very different personalities and different upbringings that can be hard. That can be a challenge. And so I think having, Two years of doing that all day, every day, and having to make it work. Um, where it's like you don't even you know, have there's no vacations from it was uh was powerful.
1: Yeah, I played um talking about diversity. I, I grew up in Dalton, Georgia. Um a lot of people that look like me, talk like me, and think like me. So and then I went off to college and I played college football and it's like now you're in a melting pot of diversity, background, um, just just personality. And so you have to learn real quick that not everyone's like you and you have to figure out, you know, how to work together with people. Um, So that was a similar experience for me. Uh, And and the other thing I'll say is last point I'll make on the mission field. My my best friend, I'm actually jealous of him because through I feel like it was seven years when he was growing up through middle school and then a little bit of high school. um, His family was missionaries in Taiwan you know, he could speak a little bit of Chinese, just, just a little bit, but, uh, just that experience he had, I've always been jealous because that's, that's something that you just can't do in the experience that he had. And it's really helped him, um, in his work now and, and all the things that he does just having that experience.
0: Yeah, no, it is, uh, it's an experience and there's other ways to, you know, to get some of those things. Like you mentioned, you know, um, similar experiences, you know, playing football and experiencing the diversity and building the team. And like, there's other ways to experience that. Um, but man, a mission is, uh, sure is a great one. And I'm, I'm really grateful for it. It was one of the hardest things I've ever done. Pro- probably the hardest thing I've ever done. And, uh, probably the best same time. I don't know if you could pay me a billion dollars to go do it again. Cause it was hard, It was <laughs> hard, but you couldn't make to pay me a billion dollars to not have done it either. Right. Like right. I'll go I'll go, earn, I'll go earn money some other way. I don't need a billion dollars.
1: <laughs> so, so going going from missions and then uh, pivoting a little bit to um, your experiences growing up in Boy Scouts. Um, I, I, well, I wanted to talk about this because I, I read an article um, talking about how Boy Scouts really opened up your mind to the environment. And really, there was one badge I, I think that I wrote down, the the environmental science merit badge that you got that really opened up your mind to the environment, how we need to have solutions. So could you talk about how, how Boy Scouts of America helped you open up your mind to, to the environment? Yeah.
0: So one of the funny things about my experiences as a, as a Boy Scout was I was, um, in a international troop because my, my time in Boy Scouts was primarily when, um, I was living in Chile, living abroad. Mm. So I was in, uh, a, an American, I was in a Boy Scouts of America troop in Chile, um, oh, with yeah. other Americans and, and, um, Who are living, living abroad. And that was a very unique experience. But I remember, I remember specifically in the environmental science badge. I remember in our, we we would meet at the school in the school gym um, after school and do the, do our, um, like once a week, we'd have like a Boy Scout activity. And I remember when part of my environmental science badge was I dug a hole in the ground and put different materials in there. And I put styrofoam and I put paper and I put this. And then every week I would dig it back up, or every I don't know if it was every week, I don't remember, but I would dig it back up and look at what's happening. And you see the paper start to disappear. And this isn't like a composting environment where it's really going to start disappearing, but it it starts to disappear over time. And the styrofoam, after a month or two, looked like it had just got put in. And it's like, oh. Um, And I felt like, Um, that was like seeing, just seeing that. And also this, uh, one thing about Boy Scouts, um, that I feel like was really ingrained in me is this idea of leave it better than you found it. Mm. And like you go on a camp out and you don't leave the campsite looking like you were ever there. You leave it looking better. If some, if someone else uh, hadn't, you know, had left some sort of mess, you clean up that mess. doesn't matter whose it is. Mm. And, um, I feel like that idea of leaving you better, leaving it better than you found it has really stuck with me and going out and, you know, seeing nature and seeing the beauty of the earth, you know, through camping and different activities and then, you know, talking about it, um, was, was powerful. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I, uh, have taken it to heart this, uh, leave it better than you found it, trying to do my best to leave this whole earth a little better than, than we found it.
1: One of my favorite books I've ever read is called "Leave Only Footprints," and I can't think of the author. But basically, this guy—he was like he was like a newscaster. Um, he went through like a bad breakup, and then he said, "I'm I'm just going to travel and, and visit every national park in the U.S." And the whole book is about him traveling to the national park, all of them. It's very interesting. But the, this this mantra, that this line of "leave only footprints," have always stuck with me because I'm a big hiker, and it's like, yeah, leave only footprints this this earth was given to us let's not let's not waste it let's not waste this opportunity we have so yeah i, I love that i love that you go by that leave better than you found it mentality yeah i love i love that idea of leave only footprints that's uh, I, I really like that so one more one more talk about your childhood, and then we'll get into more recycling and, and recyclops. But I wanted to ask. So we talk about you know your mission, the mission field. We talk about um, Boy Scouts. We talk about you living in in various countries growing up. But the one question I do want to ask is your childhood memories related to recycling and sustainability outside the scope of let's say the Boy Scouts. And I'll, I'll tell I'll tell one story real quick um, before you answer that. Um, I lead, so I lead this workshop at work and I actually led one today. And it's like a storytelling workshop on sustainability. And we're trying to get our salespeople to talk about, you know, our company's sustainability and tie it to their own passion. And, and the story that I always tell is growing up, I was like eight years old and I watched Nickelodeon and Nickelodeon had like a uh, a public service announcement campaign that they would that they would run through commercials. And it was basically saying like, when you're brushing your teeth, you know, turn off the faucet you know, when, if you're drinking plastic bottle at home, recycle it. And that always stuck with me, um, uh, and my family still recycles to this day after hearing that. Um, but, but I wanted to talk about that before you get into your memories, because Nickelodeon, that was like my first introduction to sustainability.
0: Yeah. I, you know, I, I have a handful of things that jump out to me and it's so funny because when I look back, it's almost like, oh, this is of course what I was supposed to do. This is my calling, um, so to speak. Um, but, uh, uh, you know, didn't feel that way until, until now, like in hindsight's 2020, like they say. Mm-hmm. But um, I'm trying to think some of my earliest um, memories of anything in the world of sustainability. And a couple of them stand out. I remember I remember um, similar, seen, like, you seen know, programming that uh, you kind of see on TV and whatever. One of them was, uh, I remember this ad and it was about um, not wasting water. And it showed like a kid brushing their teeth and leaving the water on. And it showed like a reservoir draining proportionally to the water going and like a fish, a fish running out of water, basically. And I remember that like that commercial has like is like burned in my brain. When I'm brushing my teeth still today, like I think of that, (laughs) which is so interesting. But uh, I remember one of my earliest science projects I did as a kid was um, all around electricity. And, and waste, not wasting energy and electric, uh, le- um, electrical metering. So I would go in, um, look at our electrical box in my house and like, look what, you know, how many kilowatt um, kilowatts per hour or whatever of energy is or getting put out. Um, and then I would go back inside and like, you know, I'd have all the lights on when I did it the first time and the TVs on or whatever. And I'd turn off things like, okay, let's turn off all the, let's turn off the TVs and see what happens. Let's turn off the lights and see what happens. Let's do this. Let's unplug the TV. And it was crazy to see, like the energy consumption just Ooh. drop. And it was like, whoa, these are such little things that I can do that actually like make a real impact. Um, I was speaking to someone, this more recently, this isn't a really childhood memory, but someone said, when we're not recycling, we're wasting. Like they, they call it a waste bin. It's like, you're truly wasting. And that's what you're doing when you're you know, leaving the lights on when the do no note need to be on. You're You're wasting. Mm. And it's like, nobody likes to waste things. Like, I think it's human nature to not like to waste things. So another uh, funny thing that happened in my childhood, my sister, I have a big family. Um, that, that actually has a huge impact on, on me as well. I think in my upbringing, ring and led me where I am. My parents have eight kids. So it's just mm. like, it's crazy. Um, I have, uh, but one of my older sisters, who's like eight years older than me or something, um, she um, gave me for my birthday um, when I was or for Christmas, I guess, probably when I was six or seven, a recycle bin, A decided recy- it was like, I loved building things. I loved like, you know, just crafting and building things. And so she gave me this box, this thing that was like, I guess, a present that was full of like boxes and paper towel tubes and toilet paper tubes and tape and glue so that I could like build stuff from all of this. And I loved this gift so much that the next Christmas, I made the same thing for my little brother uh, because I really thought it was cool. And it was like, it was just a bunch of trash that she was like, hey, he's going to like crafting with this and giving it a second life and whatever. Um, And then uh, probably the last thing I remember, I did a science project again later that was all about um, hydroelectric power. Hmm. And I was fascinated by hydroelectric power. Just thought it was so cool that we could harness falling water to turn on our light bulbs. like Right. Um, and so I just feel like all of these little things that were like, just part of my upbringing and just like exposure just really exposed me to this world of sustainability, you know, no, you know, some of them are recycling focused, but like a lot of them are just like not wasting energy conservation, you know, renewables and, and stuff like that, um, that I just, found really powerful and uh, you know stuck with me and i um i even i feel like i'm talking too much on this subject but i even feel like uh some of these i did i did a service project when i was in chile we um and the houses were built out of recycled um cartons they Mm. can make like drywall out of uh cartons um and this this nonprofit was called un techo para chile a house for a roof for chile um, and they would build, we'd build these houses from this. And we went and did a, a whole like, um, service project, um, for a field trip, you building houses from, um, milk cartons, you know, their milk boxes, they had their juice boxes. And it was like, so cool to like, I, I just thought that was so cool. It's like, Whoa, wow. We're turning, like, I'm drinking juice out of this like box, this like Tetra pack box. And now like, this is someone's house
1: whoa that's wild yeah would you call that would you call that upcycling or or what would you call that
0: yeah you could call it upside i mean depends on who you're asking some people might call it downcycling but i'd say i'd say upcycling for that that one in particular um and yeah where you're you're taking something and and not you're not just giving it a second life you're giving it a second life that's gonna last you know for decades
1: Right. And then the, the social benefits
0: behind yeah, that. and the social benefit behind it, it, it elevates it further. Yeah. And that's one of the things that I think people miss that there's actually a lot of, you know, when it comes to environmental stuff, there's actually a big social component to it. Not just in like, oh, you know, lifting. Um, in that case, you're like, you know, providing someone a roof, but there's really opportunities to help lift people out of poverty by job mm-hmm. creation, um, by, you know, through environmental cleanup efforts. And frankly, and if you look at who gets hit hardest by global warming, who gets hit hardest by all of this, it's not the rich,
1: right?
0: You know, the, the, the lowest income households in the world are the ones who are getting hit hardest by climate change. Hmm. And it's, it's a powerful, um, social thing to do. And I always joke that recycling is the gateway drug, um, to sustainability. So easy recycling, so easy. And once you start doing it, it's like, I started recycling, right? I grew up recycling and then I moved to an apartment. i talk more about that in a minute. But I stopped recycling in college because there wasn't as much access. Um, And I hated, like, I was like, oh, I didn't feel good about that. But when I, you know, really got started Recyclops, you know, started all this. Now I'm composting. I'm doing, I'm, you know, mailing back stuff for certain, you know, that it's hard to recycle. I'm doing all the things and it's like. It's hard to imagine me doing that when I, you know, that's not, my parents didn't do that, right. but I uh, got into it and here we are.
1: Yeah. So, so one point you made is, as you said, if you don't recycle, what you're really doing is wasting. Um, there was one, I tell the story, the, the story that got me into sustainability was I was sitting at my graduation ceremony and I heard someone speak. And they talked and, and said that waste isn't something to be ignored, waste is an opportunity to seize and it's really something to take hold of and we need to do something about it. Um and that really gets me into my next the next segment here, talking about you know the recycling gap and environmental um challenges. I went to school in, in Pikeville, Kentucky, and it's an old coal mining town, um very, very eastern Kentucky, almost in West Virginia. And the problem in Pikeville was there was no recycling infrastructure. So Um, If I wanted to recycle, I couldn't do it. Um, And you had, you had the university there, about 2,500 students. You had a big hospital that was like the biggest hospital in Eastern Kentucky. And then you had a big, um, a big concert venue, event venue called Appalachian Wireless Arena, who like Chris Stapleton's performed there. Jack Harlow's performing there in November. They bring a lot of people in. So you have all these big areas, but there's no recycling infrastructure. What I want to talk to you about is this big problem that we have in the U.S. of inadequate recycling access in rural areas. Um, Because for a lot of people, you know, they think, oh, we're in the U.S., you know, we have recycling, but they don't understand. Go to a rural area and there's not that access. So could you talk about this inadequate recycling access in these areas? Yeah, this just
0: still blows my mind. Looking at my journey, I, I moved, went on a mission to Russia, came home, started going to college. And I was going to college in state here in Utah and um, moved into an apartment. Um, and there was no recycling. I remember I bought um, uh, something from a vending machine on campus, I had like a bottle of Sprite or something. And I went to uh, throw it in the recycling bin and I just moved in. It's like, Oh, we don't have a recycling bin in the apartment. So we all just go out to the dumpster and do it. And I get to the dumpster, just trash. And I was like, what? Like, this isn't mother Russia. This is the United States of America. Where's our recycling? <laughs> like what? Like that blew my mind. Um, and I just thought, man, I should start, I should start something. Um, and so I wrote, I had an idea log of business ideas and I put it down. Um, and I didn't know what to do. And the interesting thing is I was in a community where actually, um, there was good recycling infrastructure for single family homes. So if you like owned a home or rented a home, you had recycling. If mm. you lived in an apartment, no recycling. And I learned the first, my first access or my first exposure to, um, access issues with recycling was surrounding apartments. I saw hey, apartments. Um, I thought at first, I just thought like Provo, Utah sucks. And then it was like, uh, other, I heard other people complain like, oh yeah, Utah bad recycling. And I was like, well, I always had recycling growing up. Like, it's not really a Utah thing. It's like this, but then I started doing research and it was like, oh, it's not a Provo thing. Um, it's not a Utah thing. It's an apartment thing that if you live in an apartment, chances are you don't have recycling. Um, you know, there aren't any great, um, sources of data on this, but we estimate something like 60% of apartments in the U S don't have access to recycling. Wow. um, And so I, I, that's how I got started was, hey, looking at apartments. And then pretty soon I got exposure to other places where there was a lack of recycling. Businesses. Um, you th- see this funny thing where businesses will buy blue bins. They'll put them all throughout the office. And they think that the recycle fairy is going to magically come and take away all their recycling. Like just because you put little bins in your office that are blue doesn't mean like magically there's a big recycle dumpster outside. Um, And... Then I, I got exposure to a, a municipality that didn't have recycling, and that that like shook me. I, I, I was surprised when my apartment didn't have recycling. I was, but I, I finally got over it. I was like, "Hey, it, it is what it is. It's a bit, it's a you know, a business, and the government's not regulating the businesses, and whatever. Like it is what it is. We need to try and get businesses to do the right thing. It would Be great if there was some intervention there, but whatever." Um, Now, on the other side, I saw this whole municipality without it. And I was just flabbergasted. Um, It was just so surprising to me. And I started doing research. Um, The first thought I had was, oh, this isn't unique. My apartment wasn't unique. There is no way this is unique. And I started doing research. And sure enough, if you live in a rural area, or even if you live on the outskirts of an urban center, there's a good chance you don't have recycling. Um, We're talking 34 million single-family homes. And then that's already adding to the 16 million apartment homes. Hmm. You throw those two numbers together, we're talking 50 million homes without access. There's like 130 million homes in the U.S. I think that's 38% don't have basic access to recycling. It's like, what? And some of these these are uh, really small towns, whatever. But some of these, a lot of these, they're not. They're not that small. They're not that far away. You look like one of the areas where we operate, where Cyclops operates is Murfreesboro, Tennessee. Mm, I know Murfreesboro, yeah. Yeah, you know Murfreesboro. Murfreesboro is greater Nashville. It's right there. Nashville is like, I think from outskirts to outskirts. I mean, like, I don't know how they border. they borders? I don't know. But like, they're right there.
1: It's right there. It's Nashville. Yeah, it's like 20, 30 minutes and you have the That's university. Exactly it. That's yeah. exactly right. It's 20, 30 minutes and you're in, like, you're downtown.
0: Murphy's doesn't have recycling. It's like, what? But that's not unique. Murphy's borough is not unique in that aspect. That's the same thing. I could I could have listed, I could have chosen a dozen different locations and said the same thing. And or more than a dozen. Um, mind-boggling. And so I when I saw that, one, two things happened. I saw, whoa, this is a big problem. Same time, like you said earlier, you know, it's an opportunity. It's like, whoa. If I care about this, I'm not unique. There are a lot of people who are going to care about this. And I don't need that many people to care. You know, I have a, you know, 10, 5%, 10% of people care. There's actually like a very sizable business. It's like, whoa, that's kind of cool. I can go, you know, grow this thing and provide access to these, you know, they call them recycling deserts. Mm. Um, and that is a, uh, that's a powerful Thought, um, and so that is where Recyclops kind of and you know, I started Recyclops in 2013. Um, started fiddling with this idea. I was actually living in Brazil on an internship. Um, got the international um, bug, and so I was like, okay, internship opportunity in Brazil. I took it. Uh, while I was there, um, decided I wanted to start something. Started making phone calls into to par- apartments in the US to try and get it going, and. Uh, It wasn't until twenty seventeen, I think. The first four years or so, we're all focused on apartments. It was a slog getting the business going. Finally, got you know got some traction, and then uh, got exposure to this problem. It was like, whoa! And that's where I needed to figure out a way to do it. Like this wasn't like, oh, I'm going to solve problems in my college town, where I'm going to have I'm going to have a truck, I'm going to drive around and pick stuff up. I needed to come up with a solution that. I could stamp all over the country and solve this problem because it wasn't a problem. It was a geographically dispersed problem. Um, that's why it's a problem. Garbage trucks cost $400,000. The cart in front of your house that you have to pick up the cycling, they, they, it'll cost 60 to a hundred bucks and maybe a little more even sometimes. And yeah, you look at that, you start doing the math and it's like, Oh, <laughs> no wonder recycling doesn't exist Especially what? when garbage trucks are getting three to four miles a gallon at best. And you think, oh, that truck now has to drive, you know, an extra hour every day. If, if even if a location is just half an hour away from recycling of structure, that's an hour a day that it's the trucks not getting utility. You think in a pl- if a place is an hour from recycling of structure, that's two hours a day. That's two of the eight hours a day. That truck is just not getting utility. Like it's not being utilized and you think, Oh, suddenly the economics of it get tough. Mm. And, and then you have these markets that are not nearly as attractive as big markets. And so it's like, where are the companies going to focus their energy on the places that are easier and bigger? It's like, of course that's where they're going to focus their en- energy, but that just leaves all the little guys, to fend for themselves.
1: Right. Yeah. yeah so, so you, you touch on, You know, identifying this problem and then finding and and creating a solution behind this, which is incredible. Uh, But, but what I want to understand is, you know, how how does this work? How are you going into these communities, let's say Murfreesboro, and you know, setting up recycling? I guess like a a recycling program for them, because you talk about dump trucks. You say four hundred thousand dollars per truck, and just the hours, the economics doesn't make sense having these big trucks. I can tell you in Pikeville, Kentucky. Just the roads, the roads, the the back roads that it takes to get to Kentucky, that's another issue. So not only the cost, the time, but the road infrastructure in these areas, it's not going to be able to handle these trucks going up well, and down. These trucks are heavy. Heavy. And and
0: truck, and this is something we, I don't talk about that much, but road damage um, road damage done by the weight of a vehicle is actually something that's, um, exponential by pounds. So what I mean is if a vehicle weighs a thousand pounds and a vehicle weighs 10,000 pounds, it's not 10 X road damage. It's a hundred X road damage, or Mm. I I don't remember the exact multiple, but it's, it's significant. Um, I think it's four X. I think it's a four X there. Um, and so it's like, you know, 10,000 pounds is going to be 40,000 pounds going to act like, you know, going to kind of have the damage of 40,000 smaller vehicles. Um, and it's like, Whoa, that's, uh, it's kind of crazy. So, um, you're right. You know, the roads, the roads aren't suited for these trucks, you know, and then those trucks being on the roads that aren't suited for them, they get worse (laughs) because of the trucks. And so the problem exacerbates. Um, yeah, big problem, big challenge. And that's, that's where it, you know, felt like, hey, what, what can there be, what solution can we have? And I, uh, I can't take, you know, real credit for the solution because um, family, I, I just basically took a couple ideas and melded them together. Um, what happened when my first exposure to this was I actually saw a family run business. There's a little, there's a little town called Mapleton, Utah, a couple thousand people pretty affluent area up against the foothills of the Rockies. Beautiful. Um, no recycling. Um, but 10 years prior, um, this family had the Merrill family had started Merrill recycling. And there, they went around with their suburban and a trailer, had a couple kids, three kids, I think boys who would uh, get out and go pick up the recycling and they had the, you know, everyone got a bin and they did it that way. And, they brought recycling to Mapleton. You know, it was a subscription. Everyone's, you know, whoever wanted to signed up, and it worked. I was like, "Huh." They were looking to exit their business. I, w- mm-hmm. I this was my first exposure to this other area. We'd just been doing apartments, and I said, "Hey, maybe there's an opportunity." So we had, we kind of picked up their business where they left off, and I started brainstorming. Necessity is the mother of invention. We were going to die. The business, um, our business, we had expanded pretty heavily into commercial recycling. I was expanded, really focused on cardboard at the time. So I'd been doing the apartment thing, expanded um, into this commercial sector, had bought a bunch of equipment, um, had a a good chunk of debt, um, and it was all going to work. And then um, recycling markets crashed abroad. And that was where most of the recycling in the U.S. was going because that's where mm-hmm. most of the manufacturing was happening, was abroad. And the point of recycling is to take something and remake. And if we're making all this stuff abroad, guess where your recycling's going? Abroad. And so suddenly my business uh, went from making sense to not making sense overnight. I remember the fateful call. I got a call that said, hey, instead of making $100 a ton, you're going to make $20 a ton. It was brutal because um, suddenly, you, you know, all, all my expenses stayed the same. All my revenue, all my expenses stayed the same, but my revenue now was um, cut in a fifth. And it was just really tough. So I started looking at portions of the business that were working. I still looked at the apartments and we were putting these little uh, uh, recycle stations there that, you know, cost about a thousand bucks to put in an apartment to kind of create a place to aggregate material. And I was like, shoot, I don't have a thousand dollars. Um, and then I looked at the, uh, uh, the apartment side or the, uh, the, no, that was the apartment side. I started looking at the business side and I said, well, that sucks. I'm going to try and sell off this portion of the business to someone who has better economies of scale, can better afford trucks, can do something. And I looked at the one piece left of the business and it was this little mom pop business that we'd taken over in Mapleton, Utah. And, and I said, okay, I need to s- Grow this business. And so I was selling plasma to try and uh, survive wow. and uh, threw 10 bucks of my plasma money onto Facebook ads and got a customer to sign up. I was like, hey, customer, like that, that has, like, you know, had a month or two payback based on what customers were paying. And it was like, okay. So I just started shoveling money into there and pretty quickly saw I could grow Mapleton, but growing Mapleton was not going to be big enough to stop the hemorrhage of cash. So I needed to come up with a way. To scale this, and the way that I was doing Mapleton was, I had my own. We had a, I had a, a truck, and a, uh, it was a box truck, like a you know small like U-Haul type truck, whatever that we had driving this route. And we also had a truck and a trailer that could also do it. And it was like, okay, um, how am I going to do this? How am I going to do this? And um, realized that there was another solution um, potentially, which was um, you could bag the recycling. So my sister lives in New York City, or did, and she just moved, actually. But in New York City, one of the things that I thought was interesting was all the recycling is bagged. It's not put in bins like I was used to growing up. It's just put in bags, put on the side of the road. I thought, man, that works in New York City. That can work in Mapleton, Utah. It also meant I didn't have to buy bins because I couldn't afford to do anything. It's like on food stamps, like trying to survive, like drowning in debt from my business just had my first kid. <laughs> uh, my, my wife is a champ sticking by my side but um we uh I thought hey maybe this could work and um with these bags that'll help me save money it makes the route more efficient because i don't have to like empty a bin put the bin back on the curb cut the time at each house down in half um costs us money up front and turns out the plastic bags have a lot less plastic than the bins and over the lifetime of a bin you actually use about the same, if not less plastic, by using the bags. As long as you keep the bags out of the environment um, and are able to recycle them, um, hopefully, that makes a difference. So it's like, okay, maybe that maybe that works. Um, so I looked for other communities that were like that. And that and uh, started saying, okay, how do I do this? How do I, uh, cool, I find other communities. How do I service them? I don't. I can't afford a truck. I can't do this. And it was like, well, what if I Ubered it? What if I hired some someone local as a truck? What if I hired them? They drove around. I pay them to do it, um, and it could work. And everything's in bags already. Now you know I've made the switch. Anyone in any vehicle can pick it up. So I I experimented with it around Christmas. Must have been Christmas 2017. Um, there's a, everyone has so much extra stuff around Christmas. So I had my normal driver in our truck, and then I hired my wife's cousins' um, twins had a had a pickup truck. And I said, hey, go drive around to pick up anything that's in bags, because we were still kind of transitioning to bags somewhere, not somewhere in bins, somewhere in bags. I said, anything in bags you pick up and any flattened cardboard. And the other driver, I'll tell him to just pick up bins. kind of ran the route double, but I got this, saw this. They went and did this whole route, and it worked. And I like, I saw how long it took them, and it just, it all penciled. It was like, oh my gosh, I think I could do that. So I went in and launched in another city and it worked. And in, Mar- in March of March of 2018, I launched in a city doing with the kind of the Uber style model. April, I launched in another city and by October we were in 10 cities doing this. A lot of it kind of launched in a city, then expand to the cities around it. But I was in 10 cities and um, said, Hey, there's something here. Um, but it all came from that necessity. Um, But yeah, we we did that uh, Uber, kind of that gig economy was really this uh, kind of unlocked all these areas that didn't have recycling. And that's what was happening. You had someone local was driving around in their own vehicle, picking stuff up. It's like, oh, that sounds eerily like the gig economy. Hmm. Um, And just uh, figured it out and chasing it. Ever since, so
1: yeah, I mean, this solution it makes sense on so many fronts. Not only are you providing recycling to these areas don't have that do not have the infrastructure, you're providing jobs to local economies to people um, through this mobility as a service platform that you're using, um and then you're you know you're giving incentives to people, you know, incentives for these even these drivers, you know, they're they're seeing the recycling, it might change their mindset mindset as well. So I'd ask you. Uh, I want to get into the to the um, the model and understand if it's a subscription model. But the first thing I want to understand is, I mean, obviously we know about Uber, we know about DoorDash. I mean, we know about these uh, these apps, these platforms. How does how does your platform work? I'm guessing it's an app. Um, could you talk about the functionality of that and just how it's used?
0: Yeah, it's a little bit different than you think. Your Uber, your DoorDash, your Lyft, whatever. Um, because when you interact with Uber, you're interacting once. Right? You're not usually having an Uber pick you up every day, you know, once a week at you know this time to take you to this place. Whereas with your recycling, you you know, that's how it generally works. You have a a schedule. There's a schedule to it. We've looked at doing on-demand, it's it's possible, but there's challenges with it. Um, but generally speaking, people want a schedule. They say, Hey, every Tuesday is my recycle day, or every other Tuesday, whatever. They put out their recycling, someone shows up, it's done. And so That creates a different, a a unique situation where the user um, doesn't actually need an app to participate, right? They just need to sign up. Hmm. Um, And whereas the driver absolutely needs something to help with navigation and routing, um, documentation. So our drivers use a driver app where they're, that gives them a smart route. You know, it's optimizing um, routes that have a hundred stops or 50 stops or whatever. It's, it's a challenge. Um, So it optimizes the route and then the driver goes and snaps photos at every stop to make sure we have documentation, you know, you know, see Amazon dropping stuff off at your house. They're taking photos. Same idea. We take a photo, um, except for we're not taking a photo to show we delivered it. We're taking a photo to show we picked it up or that you didn't have anything out that day. And then we, you know, do all that and. Um, we're we're still working. One of the things I really want to do that we haven't fully done yet, and I've wanted to do for a long time, and I think uh, it's coming soon, is really doing more with impact reports where customers have um, have access to seeing, hey, this is the impact I'm having as a consumer, because um, that's something that all of us, you know, I don't know all of us, but we hear so much. People are recycling. They want to know what's the impact I'm having. What they're not recycling to save money. They're not. They're recycling for one reason and one reason only, because it's the right thing to do and if we can you know solidify that by showing them hey look at the good you're doing i think it's i think it's powerful so the hope is that we can um start implementing things like more consumer facing components here but right now really as we see it the most important piece is that driver piece
1: hmm.
0: and there's challenges the gig economy it's 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 hard it's hard when you're building these routes and, you know, I think anyone who's used Uber before has had been waiting for a driver to come and it says they're two minutes, you know, 10 minutes away, five minutes, two, whatever, two minutes. And then it said, oh, finding new driver. It's like, what the heck? We have that, that happens where suddenly, yeah, you know, the problem's a little bit harder because instead of just having to solve that for one person, we're having to solve it for 50 or a hundred houses. It's not, oh, 15 minutes or 10 minutes of work. We're talking about like, oh, six hours of work. Shoot, we got to find someone new. <laughs> Um, is, uh, you know, got to pull from the pool and, and and that's a challenge. Um, but it has enabled us to reach the unreachable. Hmm.
1: So, uh, you talk about, you, you would like to give an impact report. Um, I I work for a large flooring company and we have like a a big, um, carpet recycling program. And one thing, one thing that they do is whenever, you know, we go in and, and recover the carpet and we take it and recycle it down. They actually provide a certificate to to the commercial client, whoever it is, talking about all the impacts that they did by recycling, yeah. all, the, all the stuff that they diverted from landfill or whatever. Um, so that's something that's really cool. And I know that our customers really want to see that. I, I feel like they're asking for certificates all the time. Uh, and, then I, and then I'll touch on your point on, on Uber. When you're sitting there and you're waiting for your Uber and then the driver just cancels. I was in New York City last week, Monday through Wednesday, or actually Saturday through Wednesday, and we were in Times Square for a conference. And I can't tell you, I mean, there was times where I, I sat there and had seven drivers cancel on me. So I, I oh, definitely, okay. definitely understand um, understand that point. So we talked about, you know, how you sign up. You sign up, you schedule it. Um, let's say it's every Tuesday. Then the driver, I'm guessing the driver, the driver has a specific route. Yep. Then I want to understand what happens after that. The driver comes and picks up the recyclables. Let's say they have a route of, you said, like 100, however many houses that they're going to. And then what happens next? Do you have wow. like the network of recycling centers or how does it work? Great
0: question. You know, we talk a lot about the kind of the front end of the business, but the back end is as much work as the front end. Um, and that we, we, we'd say we do three things pick up, aggregate, haul. Hmm. Um, you know, let's say someone's driving around in a, in an SUV, they're going to fit 10 to 15 houses of recycling in their, in their vehicle. Uh, Maybe you call it eight to 15. Um, and guess what? In some places, yeah, maybe there's a recycling center close by most places though. If we're, if Recyclops is there, there probably isn't a recycling center close by. So let's take Beaumont, Texas, for example couple hours from houston good size population um you know we can't have someone drive two hours every eight stops mm. so instead of what we do we uh get a facility whether that be a stored like self-storage storage unit in the smallest case or it be a small warehouse whatever we load up material until we get enough to load a um a bigger truck, like a, you know, a 26 foot, like, um, kind of commercial, um, I guess a right under commercial, um, truck, um, or a big trailer. And we, uh, fill that up. And when it's full, then we're hauling, you know, a lot of houses at once instead of 10. Mm. Um, And that enables us to do it. And then we have a, um, we take the recycling to the same place the cities do. They're, they have, you know, recycling infrastructure all over the country, and every major metro has recycling infrastructure. If you don't live in a major metro, probably not recycling infrastructure. That's the problem. So we, we uh, take it to the major metros um, and, you know, b- build a um, relationship with them. And so we have a network of material recovery facilities, or MRFs, that we go to all over the country. Um, and we uh, that enables us to do things and we also one of the things that's unique like we had a situation happen um, in uh, Bartlesville Oklahoma Um, Bartlesville um, is about an hour from Tulsa give or take Um, and quite a bit further from Oklahoma City well the uh, recycling center in Tulsa had a fire and they stopped accepting recycling and so they stopped accepting recycling and for a time, because they're trying to get things under control from the fire. Um, understandable. But what normally happens in that situation, because fires happen, this is not an un, like, this doesn't happen every day, but it happens every year. There's some fire at some facility. Um, We took the stuff to Oklahoma City. Did that really hurt us economically? Yeah, totally. It sucked. We're committed to recycle. Whereas if it was a city program, that would have gone straight to the landfill. No way were they driving that to Oklahoma City. No way on earth. Um, You see it um, where the city says, hey, the recycling recycling facility's down. As soon as it's back up, we'll start taking recycling there again. Um, And it's like, we we said, no, that doesn't work for us. Hmm. We can't collect people's money for recycling if they're not doing it. And, And everyone... Everyone, you know, it's a it's a subscription service. You sign up, you pay a set number of dollars a month. Um, it's like um, eighteen bucks a month. Um, it, or um, sorry, um, there's 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 a few different price points around the country, but the average customer is paying um, like twenty five dollars a month, twenty seven dollars a month, um, and you pay that subscription. Then we show up and do it all, and we and we ensure that we're actually going to do the right thing with it. Um, one of the things that's really fun about what we do is we actually have a lot cleaner recycling. A lot of reasons why. Um, one is who's signing up, but another is by picking things up more manually and in bags, um, you contaminants don't make their way into bins. So, like an example, I like to use is a toilet. Someone can dump a, a toilet into with water still in the U bend, whatever. Into their uh, trash can. And guess what? People don't clean their toilets before they throw them away. Um, mm-hmm. Right? And so someone puts that into their recycle bin. They're like, oh, it's glass. Let's put it in the recycling bin. Porcelain. Not the same. So it shouldn't be in there anyways. But then everything else that's in that, that, that gets dumped into a big truck. Mm-hmm. And it gets smashed and glass shards get in everything and nasty water and all that, whatever. And guess what? When that gets to the recycling center and they dump it and they see a chunk of a toilet on the side, they're not picking through piece by piece. They get a loader. They push that to the side. That's going to the landfill. Well, guess what? When you're picking it up, when someone's picking it up in their um, Toyota Corolla, they're not picking up the toilet. <laughs> um And so we can avoid a lot of these contaminants and even just like food, gross stuff, like it gets seen. The bags are transparent. We pick up and you don't, you don't pick up that stuff and it helps keep the recycling a lot cleaner. And then when people do make mistakes, um, it's contained to their bag, there's not cross contamination, which is a big problem in recycling. When you get things in a big compaction truck, your neighbor, you may not be a bad actor, but what if your neighbor is, their stuff gets Mm -hmm. pushed into yours. Suddenly a lot more stuff goes to the landfill than should have. Mm -hmm. Um, So we, we boast, um, a five to eight percent contamination rate. So five to eight percent of what we pick up what we pick up goes to the landfill, and that is stuff that never we shouldn't have picked up in the first place, generally. Um, and but most um, city programs, you're talking eighteen to forty percent of what gets picked up ends up in a landfill. Wow! So we're significantly better than that, which we're super proud of. Um, and uh, yeah, we're uh, um, it, you know it's a system that you know has it has its flaws. Um, nothing's perfect, but the other system has its flaws too. And right. so uh, we're we're pretty proud of the work we're able to do and the homes we're able to reach because of this.
1: Yeah, it's it's. I mean, honestly, like like looking into it, and as I kept doing research into into recycling and into you, I was like, th- this solution. It seems like it should just be in in the front of your face for a lot of these people, you know, because it's there's this massive problem. If you if you live in an area that doesn't have recycling. I mean in your mind you should be thinking you know what where is my trash going what, what am I doing and I love the example you gave about Oklahoma City and and that's great work that y'all did I, I know economically it might not have made sense but for for your mission I mean that that's ultimately what you're doing and a lot of people uh, again they don't they don't understand the challenges posed by the lack of recycling options I'll go back to Pikeville Kentucky um with no recycling infrastructure um the problem there was you had landfills that were filling up rapidly why are they filling up? Uh, if you have recycling, you can offset a lot of that amount. And they were about to have to make, I think, and I could be butchering this number, but I think it was like a $13 million investment um, in a new solution for the landfill. And in my mind, I'm just thinking, what? I mean, if you recycle, it's going to offset that. So it, it, I just, it doesn't yeah. make a lot of sense in this movie. Like, where's the money paying for the landfill? Like,
0: It's paid for at one level or another. Private dollars go into that investment,
1: Mm.
0: Um, whether it be oh, it's paid for, it's bought by a public company. Eventually, you're paying that that public that company that did it. That's not you know that's wasn't government. If they built the if it's a non government owned landfill, guess what? They're going to make money off that landfill. And where are they going to make the money? They're going to make it from you. Mm. Like you're paying for that landfill, right? And that's
1: that sucks. I mean, I mean, you could honestly run like a cost benefit analysis and just look with this investment into this big landfill, and then you could look at again. We go back to social benefits of recycling, and it's like uh, the, the scales. So, I mean, it's, it's wild. Yeah. Um, but we when we talked about Cyclops. Uh, so one question that, that I want to ask, and I know a lot of people listening will want to know, um, how many people are you servicing? I don't know if you know the exact number, um, but could you give us some kind of number of how many people you're servicing? not enough is the answer yes. and
0: I'll th- I I I can be more transparent than that um we're servicing at any um any given month we're servicing um 15,000 or so ha- households on mm-hmm. um, which you know not nothing 15,000 is a good chunk um but if you look at communities you like one community 15,000 in a single community like that's not So how many households have 15, how many communities have 15,000 households? A lot. So we're all over the country and that's what we're doing. You know, little bits here, little bits there. We have a lot of communities where we're in a hundred households. And I look at that right now as a company, we're really emphasizing this idea of going from, you know, 2% penetration in homes. We have some markets where we have 20% penetration, where we have higher penetration. Most of our markets, we're barely there. Hardly any houses have, have signed up. And we're really saying, hey, we, we we feel confident that at the very least, 10% of homes in any community are willing to pay for this and to sign up. And so we're trying to really um, increase our penetration in communities so then we can um, confidently go into more communities. Mm-hmm. And so it's – uh, but even – and then we do a lot of commercial work as well. So we're diverting about a million pounds from landfills every month, coming up mm-hmm. right up on a million, which wow. is a lot our goal is to get into a million households. Um, so we're, we're still a long, long way to go.
1: Right. Right. But I mean, I mean, what you're doing, the more that people understand and hear about it, I think more people are going to sign up and want to be involved because it just makes so much sense. And then geographically, I I know you say nationwide, but is there a specific area geographically that you've seen for Recyclops that's really been, um, I guess more popular than others in the U S? Yeah. So, um,
0: looking at our direct consumer programs, like our residential programs, we, we, like I said, we do commercial, we do commercial programs and we touch every major Metro. Like we're doing pickups in New York city. We're doing pickups in Los Angeles, mm. um, but those are like for a brand, They're specialty, weird, you know, stuff like diapers. Um, now um, looking at residential, basic standard recycling. Um, our um, strongest geographies are Tennessee mm. um, and Utah, um, Utah. I think, um, us being based here is part of that. But, um, and then Texas is another big one. Um, and then, um, right there with it is uh, Virginia. Um, so Virginia is another strong market for us.
1: So you're touching more West coast, you're touching more like the middle, middle South, and then you're touching South and then more up Northeast. So yeah, yeah, we're, yeah. we're, we're, we're in uh, 30
0: States, um, okay. doing programs all over not all of those are rec- residential program like res- some of those are through commercial um, you know we we pick up from homes but we're doing it with a commercial partner but yeah we're all all over the place
1: yeah yeah so so if someone's listening right here and they live in let's say x city in the United States that doesn't have recycling and they're like I really want to recycle but I just I don't have the capabilities in my city how can they get connected with recyclops?
0: Yeah, so they can go to recyclops.com and um you put in your um you put in your address. You can see if, if we already service the area. And if we don't, then you can do a uh I believe it's a request services. Anyone's also able uh, welcome to email me, Ryan at Recyclops, and it's R-E-C-Y-C-L-O-P-S. I'm always happy to help, but really to get going in a community um, that where we're not existing, we're not doing big pushes into new communities right now. And like I said, we're focusing on growing the communities that we're in. That doesn't mean that we're not going to add a new community for the right opportunity to to grow. But we have we need a. If a community came to us today and said, "Hey, we're going to sign up 500 people or a thousand people, um, and you know we need if we if we can sign up those people, will you come here?" The answer is going to be yes every time. Yeah, you know, if you can go and say hey, we're going to sign up 500 or 1,000 people and then that 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 will bring us there and we will we will make recycling happen in that community. Mm-hmm. And not only will we do it, but we'll do it right. right. Um and so there's definitely anyone and we've seen, you know, we had when we launched in uh, I mentioned Beaumont, Texas earlier, we launched in Beaumont. It was 100% because of um a group called the Trashy Ladies. And the Trashy Ladies, they are uh, just a group of old ladies. Who are passionate about environmental issues and recycling. Um, and they went and got everyone to sign up in the community. Mm. Um, I mentioned mm. Bartlesville, Oklahoma as well earlier. It was a city council member. He, he is why we are in Bartlesville, Oklahoma. Mm. Um, it takes, you know, it, and that, oftentimes it takes one person, it takes one person who's in the community. I am not in your community. I, my voice is weak in your community, but your voice is strong there. It can be. And so that's, uh, um, yeah, that's a cool, cool thing to see.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And one one person, one person can make all the difference in the world. I mean, you see it all the time and, and you see it in all kinds of business stories. I read a lot of memoirs of of business leaders and it's like, it always just started with one person one person having an idea or one person just changing their mindset. And then it just became this whole movement. Um, So yeah, thanks for sharing that because that's really interesting. Yeah. I mean, we've, we've probably
0: recycled, I don't know, close to a million pounds in Beaumont. Mm. Um, And it's, it's because of the, the trashy ladies, (laughs) they literally, you know, a million pounds or whatever it is being kept out of landfills. It's their fault. Like that's pretty cool.
1: Yeah, that's really cool. So, um, and I should have asked this question earlier. I don't know why I didn't. But what what materials are you able to recycle? Earlier, you touched on plastic. You touched on cardboard. But what what all materials can you recycle? Yeah, yeah. So,
0: um looking at residential programs, um, we like we touch everything, but we do those with specialty programs that are different. So, looking at your basic, if you if you're in a city that doesn't have recycling, and then we come in, what we're going to recycle is going to be, you know, paper, mixed paper, cardboard, um, plastic bottles and jugs, you know, your water bottles, your um, milk jugs, the like, um, which, you know, in some cities, it depends on where you live and what the local recycling infrastructure, you know, the nearest recycling infrastructure accepts. Oftentimes, it'll be things like sour cream cups as well. Um, not going to be plastic bags. It's not going to be your chips bags. It's not going to be, you know, the the plastic that's wrapped around your pen whatever um that's like the hard thermoform plastic not going to be that stuff and then it's going to be any sort of um can you know a soup can a soda can whatever um and then we uh, we have glass programs as well we always have glass as an add-on glass when it mixes with other recycling actually causes a lot of problems even in locations where it's accepted Glass breaks, it's dangerous. And then the broken shards of glass embed in other material, and both of them end up at the landfill. We just keep it separate. Mm -hmm. So paper, plastic, um, cardboard, metal, glass. Um, And then we offer in cities that don't have, um, um, that have recycling, we offer other specialty programs. So we'll do programs that are focused on what the city doesn't take in those cities. Things like um, batteries, light bulbs, styrofoam, Um. Clothing, things like that. I wanted to. I wanted to touch on one of the things that I think is important about our business. I want to make sure that we we uh, can briefly mention it, and that is that in the last year we we made a shift in our business where instead of only using the gig economy, the Uber style, we started using uh, working with local franchises. So someone has the opportunity to say, "Hey, I don't want to just be like some Uber driver. I want to own this," and so they. Um, are able to use all of our backend infrastructure and, um, all of our know-how. And, um, uh, if we're already, if we've been in an area, some areas we've converted to a franchise, they're able to take the book of business as well and be the owner of that. And, you know, we, we lose a lot of upside by doing that, uh, in an individual market, but we feel like we can reach more people this way. Hmm. And in the end of the day, that that's going to be better for the world and better for business. Um, and so franchising is something we've really started to do. And it's, uh, um, a, you know, in the world of franchising, it can be quite, um, can be a good business for someone, a really solid business for someone, um, and, uh, do good in the world. So kind of, kind of cool. And anyone who's interested in that, it's also, it's on our website. You can sign up to be a franchise. You can franchise an area we're already in. You can open up a new territory and, uh, it's, in the world of franchising, it's quite affordable um we wanted we wanted to make sure that there's we can we're all about access and so we want to make sure that we can be a business but also create that access. So
1: yeah, one one question that I that I have for you and that I'll get into um is how how recyclops how you are raising awareness around recyclops and then letting people know about what what um what you can offer because for me I, I hear you talking and I'm like I just want to run around to to all of the, my neighbors here and tell them about this because it's it's just great. I mean, it's it, you're filling this major hole that we need to to have filled and you have this solution. I was actually, I mentioned that I was on a call earlier leading a workshop for our, for our um, commercial sales team on um, sustainability. And, you know, one of the ladies asked me at the end in, in the question and answer, she said, you know, how can we increase recycling, you know, across the board with our clients? And I said, what I do, what I try to do with people is just take them on to a local cleanup. Take them to a local watershed and see what the human race is doing of all the waste. Last week, um, last weekend, I I was at a river cleanup and I wish I could pull up pictures to show you right now of how much trash. We picked up 2000 pounds of trash in this one watershed and you're talking styrofoam and plastic. And that was like the bulk of it all. Styrofoam cups from Chick-fil-A, from Zaxby's, plastic bottles, you, you name it. And it was just mounds of trash. I've never seen anything like it. And so I told her, I said, just take them in the community and do a cleanup because that will shift their mind that you need to start making change. Um, so back, back to my original question, you know, how do you raise awareness um, of Recyclops to people?
0: Yeah, so community is everything. Um, that's actually one of the reasons why we are starting to work more with franchises because they are in the local community and they're, they have such a better voice than us. We try and work hard work with local government. We work with community groups. Um, we do traditional, you know, we've done a lot of traditional advertising, um, whether it be, you know, digital advertising, we've done some physical stuff as well. Um, and really try and get the word out. But we found that the word of mouth is king in this recycling is a community effort. And so Mm -hmm. the best way to hear about it is from the community. Um, I feel like we still have a lot to learn in how to grow that community. You know, I mentioned that's a big goal of ours right now as a company. And I feel like it's been, it's been a challenge. Um, You know, we can, we can really get, get a good little uh, hook in a community, but then growing beyond that is uh, it's a slog. And uh, we, we're still learning and growing as we do that. You know, we're been around for a hot minute, but um, may had some major pivots over time and are, learning and growing and, you know, I think we've, we've built a fairly successful business along the way and hopefully we can do that.
1: We're going to get, we're going to get to a million households. We're definitely going to have that. It's going to happen. No, a- amen. We, yeah. It, the opportunity, I mean,
0: a million is when you look at the 30, the 50 million households that don't have it, a million is a far cry from what we need. Um, so I, uh, I, I truly believe we can, we can do that.
1: So the final two questions I have for you um, are more personal. So we're we're taking, taking going from a cyclops, now going to the more personal side. Um, I try to ask everyone this question that comes on the podcast. It's very simple and it can almost be hard to answer sometimes because it's so simple, but I like to ask it so the listeners can get an understanding of, okay, a lot of these answers to this question are very similar. And, And the question is, why is sustainability important? Or maybe I should rephrase it for you. Why is recycling important?
0: you know, a couple of things that I've said already, I think touch this, that there's only one earth. This is it. This is what we've been given. And we have a responsibility to take care of it. You know, if you, if we, you know, looked at the earth, it looks like an episode of hoarders or something. I don't Those like hoarding shows or I don't know. Yeah. I'm like, it's disgusting the way that we treat the earth at times and the earth deserves better and we can do better. And so i recycling is just the easiest way. Some one of the things I wish everyone knew about recycling, people think about recycling and they think, Oh, keep stuff out of the landfill. Totally true. Landfills are disgusting. Go to a landfill and you'll want to recycle, but we got a lot of space in the United States of America. There's plenty of room for more landfills. They do a good job of, you know, generally speaking, having landfills be environmentally safe. At least we think they are. (laughs) But they thought they were 50 years ago and then they turned out, oh shoot, they're leaking all this stuff into the water. Um, Whatever. But um, the real problem is when you throw away a plastic bottle, they have to extract oil from the earth to get a new plastic bottle. Whereas when you recycle a plastic bottle, they can take that bottle and turn it into a new one. And that is where recycling is impactful. It's not from landfill diversion, which is keeping things out of landfills. That's huge. That's important. It's actually what diverting does, though. Mm. It enables us to not waste. It enables us to take something and use it again, instead of just taking something and having it, you know, buy once, throw away, buy again, throw away, buy. It's like, no. We can, we can make this thing a circle, and that's the only way we have to do that. You know, there, there are not unlimited resources. We, it may feel like it right now, and maybe during our lifetimes we won't run out. But eventually, the earth—we have to figure this out. Hmm. And I would rather figure it out than make my children figure it out, or make my grandchildren figure it out, or great grandchildren figure it out. Like, let's figure this out today.
1: Yeah, the conversation around the circular economy is definitely one of the biggest right now. And if we can create products that are circular and not like you're saying, single use, single use plastics where you you produce it, you ship it off somewhere, it sits, on, it sits in a grocery store, a consumer comes and buys it, drinks it and throws it away. That's just, it, there, there's so much wrong with that process. But if you can make it circular, make it reuse over time, then obviously we're going to be better off for that. Um, so, Ryan, thank you so much for joining us on the Green Hour. I, I've been looking forward to, to talking to you ever since I listened to your episode with Corey Connors um, on his podcast. So, uh, thank you so much for, for joining us.
0: Oh, of course. I'm really glad we were able to talk, and uh, hopefully, this was helpful to someone out there who's listening.